Take your Bibles and turn to Matthew 26, please. chapter of the Bible that I think probably is going to get more sermons per chapter than just about any other chapter in this church's history that I'm aware of. I think this is number four in chapter 26. We're going to start in verse 30. This is the Word of God, and because it is a divine author that has written this, he wrote it a long time ago with different people in mind, but also with you in mind, so that this is God's word for you today. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. Father, we do thank you for the reading of your word and that you promised to use it. We ask now that you would use its preaching for your glory, that we might see Christ in whose name we pray. Amen. Periodically, we're gifted with one of those moments in our kind of current time and space where it's called a hot mic moment where somebody thinks maybe the microphone's not quite turned on, not quite recording yet, but of course it is, and they end up speaking their mind in a way that maybe wouldn't be socially acceptable or publicly received, and you get this kind of brilliant moment of seeing what they actually think. I got to watch one this last week. It was in a sporting event, and a sport's not important. That doesn't matter, and you don't care. Uh, But it was intriguing because one of the gentlemen participating in the sporting event had just been talking a tremendous amount of trash and then immediately proceeded to play poorly. Immediately proceeded to underperform and you have this hot mic moment where just right at the perfect time the, the, the microphone catches him and he's, I don't even know why I talk trash. The second I do, I lose. I hate this. And then proceeded to kind of motor on about his experience. It's fantastic because you've got to see in this, in this kind of top athlete this moment of just, why do I do this? It's almost like when I'm proud, a fall immediately follows. Which, of course, if you know your Bible, you're like, well, yeah, that's what God's been telling us for uh, thousands of years. It's exactly what's in the Scriptures. Pride is indeed followed by a fall. We get a tremendous example of that in the text before us. In fact, actually, one of those examples that it's, it's almost painful to consider. It hurts to actually think through uh, how badly this goes for a man that we love and we, we you know, in theory, want to see do well if we're reading this story for the first time. 
Peter's one of the heroes in the story, and certainly as you continue on, he's one of the great heroes that follows. He's in some ways the most relatable figure that interacts with Christ, and yet here we get to see him at his absolute worst. Now, it's significant actually where we are in the period of the ministry of Jesus. This is the last 24 or 20, roughly two-ish hours that he's alive prior to his crucifixion. We've, at this point in the story, just had the Last Supper. We've had the Passover feast. He's instituted communion. He's given them some of the most intimate teaching. He's spent some of the most intimate time of prayer with them. That's John chapter 17. We get to see some of his most relational and tender ministry with them. I mean, he's just washed their feet not too many hours ago prior. He's told them who he is and what's happening in his ministry, and they've come to realize that there's a traitor in their midst, and Judas has fled to go betray the Christ. This is coming out of the most kind of close and intimate aspect of the ministry of Christ Jesus with his disciples. And the 11 men that have walked with him out here to the Mount of Olives have just kind of come off of this very traumatic experience where Judas has betrayed them, but even more so betrayed Christ Jesus himself. I love how even the way that the English has it divided, that verse 30 is half about the previous section. This is the natural outworking. They sing hymns as they finish out the Passover meal, and then probably quite late at night, head out to the Mount of Olives. And kind of out of nowhere, it seems, at least it feels, but certainly it's not Without context, Jesus drops a bomb. Verse 31 is hard. Now again, most of us, not Old Testament scholars in the room, many of us not really well-versed in the Old Testament at all, are going to miss the significance of what's taking place in this, which is why I'm going to walk you through it. Jesus, in verses 31 and 32, drops a a kind of massive bomb on them and explaining, tonight's the night, guys. This is the moment not where Judas betrays me. This is the moment, this is the night where you all betray me. All of you. You will leave me too the way that he himself has left me. You could see how that might be a little bit of a hard thing to grasp. A little bit emotionally traumatic. I mean, it makes sense, actually, Peter's response. I'm not like Judas. Hate that guy. That guy just betrayed you. That guy's in process of doing hateful things we can't even understand. I hate that guy. I'm not like that guy. But instead, actually, we miss, I think, probably because we're just a little bit maybe uneducated of readers. What Jesus is making here in verses 31 and 32 are really two promises, and it shows our failings. We, we don't appreciate the promises of God the way we ought. The first is, you're all going to fall away. He gives this to the disciples there, but he gives explanation. 
For it's written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. And here he's quoting from Zechariah. Chapter 13, but he's quoting in the middle of a very significant argument that Zechariah's been making in his letter. Zechariah, at this point, has been telling the tale of two shepherds. Not the tale of two cities, but two shepherds. And in chapter 11, verses 4 through 14, he introduces the good shepherd. Interestingly, an idea that will be picked up by Jesus and John many years later. This good shepherd would be God's shepherd. He would be provided by God and would be given to the Jews, be given ultimately to God's people, whoever those might be, to take care of them, to watch over them, to safeguard them, to protect them, to be what a shepherd is supposed to be. The problem in Zechariah 11 is that this good shepherd provided by God is not received by the people. In fact, actually, they hate him. They reject his leadership. They don't want him. They don't receive him. It's almost exactly what John says in chapter 1, that the people of God would not receive the Messiah himself, the Jews. And Jesus is sent to them, and they don't receive him. They don't listen to him. They don't honor him. They don't crown him as king and follow every one of his words and all of his ways the way they ought to do. Instead, they reject Christ. I mean, at this point in the story, in Matthew, true story, real history, who's the driving force to get Jesus killed? It's the religious leadership of the Jews. It's not just their cultural leadership, it's their religious elite. The scribes and the Pharisees and the priests. They're trying to get rid of the Christ, the good shepherd. And so Zechariah 11 has been already even fulfilled as this has been written out in front of the disciples. They've had a chance to see it. So what's happened? Well, a tale of two shepherds. The Lord admits that that one shepherd is um, not received by the people, and so instead what he'll do is he will give them a shepherd who is terrible. The implied idea is probably that it's a political shepherd, a a king, a governor. Uh, Zechariah 11, 16 says, For behold, I'm raising up in the land a shepherd who does not care for those being destroyed. He does not seek the young, heal the maimed, nourish the healthy, but instead he devours the flesh of the fat ones, tearing off even their hooves. This bad shepherd's going to prey upon the people of God instead of care for them. It's a tale of two shepherds. That's what the point of that part of Zechariah is, but interestingly, it kind of builds to a, a very kind of significant climax in chapter 13, where Jesus quotes from where God says, he is going to fix it. He's going to reconcile the problem of his people. They need to be taken care of. They need someone to protect them. They need someone to provide for them. They need someone to heal the sick. They need someone to feed the hungry. They need help. But the complicated part is in verse, or chapter 13 of Zechariah. He says that he's going to be the one that does that. But the way he's going to do that is even by destroying the good shepherd. Like, what? That seems like a terrible idea. 
You have two shepherds, you have a good one and a bad one. You would think that the way that you would resolve this is by elevating the good shepherd, give him more power, give him more authority, give him more glory, and instead you have actually where Jesus says, quotes part of it, I will strike, this is God talking, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. Now it's intriguing how Jesus has used this quote in highlighting what's about to happen to them in the next couple of hours, in the next day. The good shepherd is about to be struck, stricken, smitten, and afflicted. It's going to happen by the Jews. It's going to happen by the Romans. But interestingly, Christ himself is acknowledging at ultimate end, at biggest importance, at most significant, he is about to be stricken, smitten, and afflicted by God himself. You think, well, that doesn't sound like a very good promise. (laughs) Jesus is promising that God's about to hate him and destroy him. That's awful. If that's all that you know about the book of Zechariah. The significant part about the book of Zechariah is that this is functionally the turning point of this section of the book where it moves from this to God's victory. That in some fashion, though it's not clear there, in the destruction of his good shepherd, he would then provide total victory to care for his people, to provide for them, to watch over them and to feed them. You see, what he has here is a very sweet promise for the people of God that is wrapped in the language of suffering. It's wrapped in the language of difficulty. In fact, actually, the second promise is the same way. Verse 32, this promise is one that, I mean, you've probably read this passage a bunch of times, and this is one of the ones you you forget that he tells them. Oh yeah, by the way, verse 32, but after I'm raised up, I'm going to go ahead of you to Galilee. And that that language raised up there is, I mean, he's absolutely 100% saying, after I'm dead, I won't stay that way. I'll meet you you down the road. (laughs) But again, you can see how it's wrapped in the language of difficulty. What he's promising is that he will be raised up from death, that he will meet them in Galilee in the future, that he's not going to stay dead. He's not going to stay gone. But you can tell the disciples don't catch that part. They don't hear the promise. They only hear the suffering. They only hear the difficulty. Friends, I, I, I think that's probably not something that we should probably make fun of them for. For perhaps that's maybe how we ourselves tend to operate, is it not? That when it comes time to interact with the promises of God and we interact with them frequently, rather than only seeing His promises in the goodness and His goodwill and His love and His affection for you, we too sometimes get hung up in that language of suffering. We get preoccupied with the inconvenience. We get preoccupied with the difficulty. I 
we fall apart. That struggle. Many of us have been following the the great sadness that's happening in the Ukraine right now. If you don't know, uh, many of the Presbyterian denominations uh, have missionaries in the Ukraine and have for a very, very long time. I've had a a friend, a family member of a friend who's been in there since I think 97 or 96. And it's been intriguing because the stories that we're hearing coming out of the church in the Ukraine is largely stories not of evacuation. It's not of, of the sadness of families being separated. Those are happening. It's not the stories of, of, of the inconvenience of having to leave your possessions to go be refugees somewhere else. Who knows where you can go that will be safe. The stories that we're hearing coming out of the Ukraine, and as best we can tell, are stories proclaiming God's promises and a trust in His goodness. I mentioned it in Sunday school today, but in a sweet video that went this week of one of the churches there singing, He Will Hold Me Fast. And the city burns around them. He will hold me fast. He'll never let me go. I I would perhaps lovingly kind of challenge us in the room to say maybe it would be a good idea for us to contemplate our own faith. To look at maybe how fragile it is at times. And as part of our prayer life to be that the Lord would give us faith a faith that's richer and deeper than simply existing in the shallow good times when our lives are filled with blessing and happiness. It's important that we learn to appreciate God's promises even when they're difficult to grasp or perhaps even wrapped in the language of suffering. One of the hymns we sing here with great regularity God Moves in a Mysterious Way, written by a man named William Cooper. I love the story. Um, Cooper spelled Cowper, but pronounced Cooper. Cooper struggled with mental illness his entire life, uh, even to the point of, of um, we would call it great suffering, great suffering. Uh, and at one point in his life, he thought that his mental illness would be so great that it would actually take his life, and he went and talked to his pastor, and his pastor said, well, you know, it's an opportunity, an exercise for you to extend your life and to improve its quality. I'm going to a- encourage you to start writing hymns, start contemplating the promises of God, and to start putting them into ink and in a way that we can, as a church, start using them. And he and his pastor ended up publishing a hymn book together. It has some of our absolute favorites in it, but one of my favorites out of all of his is that he has a line in there, behind a frowning providence, God hides a shining face. And we can look at circumstances and say, man, they might be hard. You know, perhaps sickness is overwhelming. Perhaps betrayal is overwhelming. Perhaps the pain is overwhelming. Perhaps the unknown is overwhelming. Perhaps our fear has paralyzed us. Friends, it has not changed God's heart toward His people. And just because it seems scary, it seems painful, it seems difficult, it does not mean His promises are any less true for you or any less real. Interestingly, though, I think Peter, he catches the difficulty language 
and does what I think we would say in some sense is quite honorable. All right, he's just watched his friend that he's traveled with for years betray his master. We've watched his friend who shared the supper with the Christ betray him and go off to do his villainy. And then Jesus tells them they're all going to leave him. And you can see how Peter would kind of take that as perhaps a shot to his honor, right? I'm not like that guy. I hate that guy. And you could see how it would maybe perhaps be a noble idea to profess that he's not like that and he's going to be different. And in the English, it almost reads a little bit innocent, but in the Greek, it does not. Verse 33, Peter answered him, and the grammar here is very, very definite, that he's throwing his fellow disciples under the bus and then accelerating the bus over top of them. They will fall away. Maybe they might. All of those bozos right there, the other 10. I'm not going to, though. I mean, sure, Judas betrayed you. He'd been with you a long time. All these other guys probably will. I know them too. (laughs) I won't. If it costs me everything, I won't. They will fall away, but I will never fall away. And while we can be very sympathetic to Peter's mindset here and be very sympathetic to his circumstances, I suspect that it might be safe to say that Peter makes one uh, significant mistake. In fact, actually, you really, to kind of be honest, it's the mistake that Peter tends to almost always make. When we do see him failing, and in God's mercy, we see him do that regularly in the Gospels. What Peter's mistake is, is that he stops looking at Jesus, and he starts looking at the people around Jesus. He starts looking at the circumstances and the situation that he's in instead of just looking at Jesus. Rather than asking, would you like to continue explaining Zechariah to us? I'd love to know when your kingdom is going to come in fullness the way that Zechariah describes it. Rather than asking, is there anything that we can do to be more faithful to you? Rather than asking, how can you help us, Jesus, to not do this horrible thing? Instead, he lets his eyes wander from the Christ. And you get a two-part sentence where the pronouns do all the heavy lifting, though they fall away, I will never. The emphasis in the original Greek is on the I. He he uses a, a unique grammatical construction that makes that explicit point. Me, I, extra I in the sentence. I'm not going to do that. The interesting thing is actually, if you go back and look at when he, he's walking on water, the same thing happens. If you go back just a handful of chapters, Matthew chapter 14, verses 29 through 31, the same thing happens. Uh, Jesus tells Peter, come on out on the water. Peter gets out of the boat, walks on the water, comes to Jesus. But when he sees the wind, he is afraid and he begins to sink. Lord, save me. And Jesus at that point accosts him, oh, you of little faith. 
Why did you die? See, the, the issue here is I, I don't think it's so much that uh, Peter doesn't have good intentions in, in wanting to profess his fidelity to Christ, but the issue is, is he's not looking at the Christ when he does it. He's not looking at Jesus. His, his eyes aren't, are fixed upon the Savior. He's letting himself be caught up in people and places and things. And again, I, I think this is a temptation that's common to all Christians, is it not? We see it with so many of them. I mentioned it just a handful of weeks ago. Mary and Martha, one of them busy with the, the busyness of life. Missing the opportunity to sit at the feet of Jesus. And friends, I, I suspect this is the natural outworking of the first. Right? Our first point that we were looking at is that we're called to appreciate the promises of God even when they're difficult to grasp, even when they're wrapped in the language of suffering. Then The second kind of implication of that, the consequence of that is that it is very easy for us to look at the language of suffering instead of the Christ Himself. It's so easy for us to be preoccupied with our difficulty I mean, I know this, right? My lungs still aren't right from COVID in the fall. I understand every day when I go up the stairs, it's so easy to be preoccupied with how the lungs work that day. Knowing that God is the one who gives good gifts, but instead to just be thankful that I can be in the presence of Christ any day and every day. It's so easy to let our pain kind of overwhelm us. Paralyze us. Instead of having our eyes fixed on the Savior. For those of you that have been through seasons of great struggle, you know this to be the case, don't you? It's the hardest battle. It's not dealing with a back or dealing with a hip or dealing with your knees. It's dealing with the space between your ears and to make sure your mind is fixed on Christ. And I just briefly would like us to consider in the rest of this passage here why Jesus is worthy of looking at. Why Jesus is worthy of looking at. And his response to Peter is really significant, right? I'm never going to fall away. They might, all those bozos, but I'm never going to do that. In verse 34, Jesus gives him this kind of just really damning statement. Truly, I tell you, you're going to do it. Not only are you going to do it, you're going to betray me this very night, and you're going to do that before the rooster crows. You're going to deny me three times. Now, for us, we hear that and go, oh, he's just telling the future. Uh, for the reader that would have been kind of aware of what's happening in this kind of cultural situation, they're going to understand that this is a very short period of time that Jesus is acknowledging. And it's a very short period of time where most humans are asleep. It's quite likely this conversation is taking place better part of 11 o'clock, and if you live in a world that doesn't have electricity, everybody goes to sleep when it gets dark. You don't stay up super late because you don't have electricity to make that. Plus, also, you get up very early because that's when the sun comes up. The schedule looks a little different than some of us who are night owls in the room who stay up late and get up a little bit later. Instead, they're probably up much later than they normally are. It's a big celebration week. They've just had Passover. Jesus has been teaching them for many, many hours. 
And interestingly, Jesus' explanation to Peter is, you're going to betray me during the time you're supposed to be asleep at some point in the next five-ish hours. It's an unbelievably specific explanation, and it's not only specific, but it's almost implausible because it's in a time in which a normal human's going to be asleep. I mean, why on earth would you be betraying Jesus in the middle of the night? Before the rooster crows, that's what's going to wake us up in the morning. How would I have opportunity to betray him now? Who's even going to be awake to betray him to? It's very specific, very extraordinary, and very unexpected. But I I suspect, actually, the reason why it's so unexpected to us is because we think of our failures from the wrong perspective. We forget that our failures are only a mystery to us. They're not a mystery to God. Right? If, If the Lord allows you to live longer than the rest of this afternoon, you will fail God. You're going to. It's it's going to happen in some fashion. We are on this side of glory. You will fail him. The interesting thing is the only party in the relationship that doesn't know that yet is you. God knows. He knows all of who you are and all of what you're going to do for the rest of your life. He knows all of your failures, all of your shortcomings. He knows your most shameful and dreadful experiences that you have waiting for you for the rest of your life. And his promises are delivered with that in mind. I love that because when we interact with God, honestly, friends, in in the back of our mind, we have this kind of implicit hope. It's subconscious, and most of us, I don't think, tend to even articulate it out loud, but I think most of us tend to hope that all of God's promises are good for me because someday in the future, I'm going to wake up and I'm going to be a good person. Or like all of these sinful things that I've been doing, I'm just going to stop those. Like at some point in the future, I'm going to wake up and I'm going to deserve the love that God gives me. Now, none of us would be so foolish as to articulate that most of the time, sometimes, occasionally. But it's in the back of our minds where we we have this kind of idea that someday I'm going to be good enough to deserve the the love that God gives. I'm going to be good enough to be worthy of the promises that he's given. I'm going to be everything that I'm supposed to be for all of those, you know, interactions with me to be contractually appropriate. So when Zechariah, where Jesus promises that he's going to be restoring the kingdom and taking care of all of his people, we have this idea in the back of our minds that at some point we're going to be good enough to deserve it. And when we look at Peter kind of getting preoccupied with his circumstances and not paying attention to Jesus, we say, well, I can do that too right now. I understand that. But someday I'm going to be good enough that I won't be doing that because I'm going to be good enough to deserve it. The interesting thing is that as Jesus interacts with Peter here, he's highlighting for the fact that Peter's the only one in that two-person relationship that has no idea he is going to betray him. Jesus knows the exact circumstances of it. In fact, actually, he even gives a time deadline. You're going to betray me, but you're not even going to betray me. You're going to betray me three times. 
And you're going to do it by a time in the night that you would not even be able to expect to do that. Treason three times before the rest of the world even wakes up. Our failures are only a mystery to us, not to God. His love is not conditional in such a way. Friends, in fact, actually, what I'm hinting at here is really antithetical to the gospel. It's the opposite of the gospel. It's this idea implicit in the back of our minds that we're going to be good enough at some point to deserve God's merit, to deserve God's love, to merit His favor. Instead, the gospel actually is very freeing to say, no, you never will be. You never will be. In fact, actually, your only goodness, your only merit, your only positive standing is that which you have in Christ, which you do not deserve and never will. But again, I think this is one of those many reasons why it's so easy for us to kind of be so filled with self. Because I'm a good guy and I'm going to be an even better guy. The interesting thing here, Peter, verse 35, doubles down on it. You have those moments in life, I I unfortunately get to see these more than I think many folks, where uh, a person makes a stupid decision and then given an opportunity to get out of it, instead of taking the free out, they double down. Like, oh friend, you're being an idiot. Don't double down on stupid, it doesn't help. Yet here Peter, I guess with all the best will in the world, says, even if it costs me my life, which by the way it will, not at this point, but a few years in the future. Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. Jesus leaves it be. Given the opportunity to take a pass, given the easy way of learning, he doesn't take it. Peter instead commits himself to his foolishness and is going to learn a hard lesson in just a few hours. Really, by the end of the chapter, it doesn't last very long. The interesting thing, though, and again, a part that we oftentimes don't catch, is that Peter's sin here is at this point now contagious, though. Because he's so adamant, instead of being humble and asking Jesus what he could learn, instead of asking Jesus what he could do to be more faithful, instead of learning his prideful insistence is contagious and spreads to all the disciples. So now instead of one man insisting on his righteousness, you have 11, which fantastically isn't going to last very long because they fall asleep on him and betray him in the next section, uh, and then they act the fool in the next section, and then they deny him in the next section. It doesn't really last very well. But there's an intriguing thing, I think, that we can look at and consider, maybe perhaps an element just briefly that you haven't thought about from the passage, is that Jesus understands not just Peter's betrayal, but he understands all 11 disciples' betrayal. And for many of us, there is no sin that we view more grievously or view as being more evil than when people betray us. Right? You, can, you can do whatever you want, but if you betray me, that's like the ultimate line in the sand, right? That is the one that there is no coming back from for most of us. It's like, once you betray me, that's it, that's it. That's done. 
My good opinion, once lost, is lost forever. Quoted from a book I can't stand. The intriguing thing is what happens in the section immediately following, right? Jesus then goes to the Gethsemane. He says it's time to pray, tells the disciples to go and sit over there and wait and pray. And then who does he take with him to go into a private prayer meeting? The very man who's going to betray him by the end of the chapter. This is where you get to see the heart of Jesus as being filled with a grace that I cannot understand and that he takes the man who's going to betray him three times by the end of the night and says, let's go be intimate together in prayer. I need you to keep me company while I go plead with the Father regarding the crucifixion. The most horrible time of prayer of all time is about to be uh, participated in and Peter's invited to go along. In fact, actually, Jesus does not let Peter's betrayal determine his relationship forever. He doesn't hate him forever. Instead, he continues to extend mercy after mercy after mercy. And there are some of you in this room that um, you struggle with your own life because you have great shame. You think you've done something that's unforgivable. I've pastored long enough to know some of who you are, some of you I don't. But you feel like you have hidden within your heart the unforgivable sin. And what you say is, or hidden in your past the unforgivable sin, what you say is, I know Jesus forgives in theory, and I know that he perhaps even forgives this, but I just can't let the shame go. And when it comes time to think about your relationship with God, it is a relationship that is dominated by shame. And friends, I would lovingly say you need to confess that sin to the Lord. Ask for his forgiveness and ask for him to change your mind. Because friends, he knew before you committed that sin that you would. And he still went to the cross. And he knew while you were committing that sin, and he gave you the strength and the energy to commit it. And he knew that when he went to the cross. And he knew how you would sinfully cling to that shame even before. And he went to the cross. Friends, there is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. His mercies are new every morning. In fact, actually, he loves you so much that he chose not to take your most shameful, embarrassing moment and enshrine it in Scripture forever the way that he did for Peter so that the church for the rest of history would be able to talk about his failings. He didn't do that to you because he loves you and he cares for you and he loves Peter and I can't wait to talk to Peter about it when I get to glory. But perhaps, maybe, we just need to spend a little bit more time laboring to believe that Jesus actually means what he says. That he forgives sins and he cares for his people. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We confess that we like to believe your promises in the abstract, but we don't like to believe them in the concrete. And we like to believe them when they're good and make us happy, but not when they demand anything from us emotionally. 
We admit readily that it's easy for us to believe your promises when they don't inconvenience us in any way or they don't require us to give up our secret shame. And we thank you that you have told us while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Please help us in our unbelief. For Christ's sake, amen.